right, we're going to do a, just a brief Q&A. We don't have a ton of time, and we don't want to keep everybody all night and keep these guys all night. But uh, this, is, this is something that we usually try to do at the end of the conference, and it's just kind of fun to – and it's not really even the end. We've still got tomorrow, but the end of this night anyway. So if you guys have any questions, um, either about something these guys have already talked about or, you know – we're going to try to be mindful of time and not, you know, spend all night on it. So just be mindful of that as well. But if you've got any questions or, or anything, and this is pretty important for you guys to participate, because if you don't have questions, we've got three pastors up here, and we'll just talk the whole time, which isn't terrible, I guess. But uh, but do y'all have any questions of, of anything that's been going on or stuff you've been curious about that you about grace or about the gospel about anything? Anybody? I'll come. I'll come to you. How about that? Um, I noticed you have materials out there that explain like grace versus the law. And I'm just curious if you have or know of anyone that has really good materials for kids that explains grace versus the law. Yeah. Frank Friedman. Yeah. Frank Friedman has written some children. We're recording this. Mike, all right. And uh, I, I have, he gave me some samples back some time ago, but he's in Baton Rouge. So, you, but yes. I think Connie Witter has some stuff out of Tulsa too uh, because of Jesus Ministries. Okay. Who, Connie Witter? Connie Witter. Okay. Yeah. We know Frank Friedman, so we can, we can get that worked out. So this is going to be recorded so we can come back and listen to it and remember these names. Okay. That's good. I mean, that's, that's a good question. All right. David Brumbaugh, coming to you. Two questions if you answer no to the first one. If you answer yes to the first one, I'll follow up on them. Have you read and studied uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Cheap Grace? No. No. Okay. But I'm not going to ask you to, to c- compare and contrast on that. Uh, because it, it implies that grace is cheap, but it's actually quite expensive. There's a, there's a whole... whole uh, it, it, anyway, it's like from World War II-ish. Uh, but the other one is... Uh, this is for Paul. You talked about the difference about works and work, and I'd like to have you kind of expound on the expound on that from a motivational standpoint, because you get this whole motivational speaker-ish thing uh, in the world, and it almost sounds like like they're doing a better job at getting people to go to work than than the grace community, and I. I, I, I kind of wanted you to, you, you sounded like you had some opinions on that, and I wanted yeah, you to expound on that. Yeah, that's an insightful way to say that, because from my experience, the motivational speakers of the world that that are doing the best job are getting people to work more than the grace community is. And that is, I think, a good way of saying that, is I differentiate between works and work, because works to to my thoughts works is an entirely church phrase okay so you're not going to hear for the most part something someone in the world speak of works they'll speak of work what you need to do to improve your world or your life whereas works we categorize that i think as Things that you do to be approved of God or things that you do to receive things from God. And I'm trying to draw a stark line with people 
that there is a difference in the message of works for your righteousness or works for your anointing or works for favor and work because you're a member of the kingdom of God and the world desperately needs you to work. And so I believe that works as a doctrine will place you under the law and performance and leave you in failure and death and condemnation. But work is the natural position of sons, okay? They rest in their identity, they work in their kingdom. It's like a, the, 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 young, the man who knows he is a son, who has a father who is a king, need not put himself under works to be his father's son, but he will always work because he knows he's his father's son. Why, is, why are the motivational speakers of the world getting more out of people um, as far as work than the Grace Church? Part of it is because in the motivational speaking of the world, they do not speak to people from a place of identity. They speak to people in a place of change. Change your world, change your mind, change your life. And that's extremely exciting and motivating, but it can quickly delve into no identity. And so you leave and you're, you you got to keep listening to the tapes and keep reading the books and keeps up. Grace has the answer. The message of grace to me has the answer, but we're not always utilizing it because we're spending so much time telling people that they are sons and rest, 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 and fighting against works that we're not equipping people to go out and work. And so we have to do a better job, I think, of telling people that there is a difference in works and work and that it's time to get busy doing something for the kingdom. But the, the, the issue seems to be that we, we tend to drift off the trail back into performance, and we have to actively do that. I would say one other thing for it with a scripture. Labor to enter into rest, to me, means the hardest thing you'll ever do as a child of God is maintain who you are from a place of resting in the finished work. Otherwise, you'll try to finish the works and, and, and delve off that trail. So that kind of hopefully was a helpful answer. Does it play into it? Yeah. 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 Actually, I just used that in a, in a message very similar to that thought recently because I kind of look at that as um, you, we've, we've isolated that passage in front of that, that it's the way to get saved, you know, by, great, by faith we're saved. Uh, by grace we're saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. And we sit and argue. I've, I've heard grace circles sit and argue about what is it that's the gift. Is faith the gift? Is grace the gift? Um, the answer is all the above. It's all the gift. The answer of what we're doing with the gift is that, yes, we are his masterpiece. We are his best expression of himself on the earth. And therefore, we ought to be utilizing both the faith and the grace to make a difference in the world. If you're not going to do it, who is? That's kind of what we should be left with at the end of the day. And I don't think it's a bad thing to walk out of service 
and feel like, wow, I'm a son. Man, I really ought to do something this week. Because, you know, I've, I've heard grace circles that cut down the word ought. If you go into a church and all you hear is what you ought to do, well, I mean, if you, all you heard is what you ought to do, then you probably didn't hear the gospel. But if you heard the gospel without anything you ought to do, I wonder if you heard the gospel, because the gospel always has an ought to it. Um, anyhow. That's, Let me that. say this, too. You know, I think that it's like uh, if you heard the gospel of grace, you may not have heard a bunch of stuff to do, but if you heard the gospel of the kingdom, you might find out there's some responsibility. In other words, there's a lot of things called the gospel. Yeah. And said that I labor more than all of you, yet not I, but the grace of God that worked in me. But I like to use this picture when it comes to works and labor of Leah and Rachel. That to me is a powerful picture of works for righteousness and works that flow from righteousness. And, and what I like, to, it's like, uh, you know, Jacob, or Jacob comes to Laban. He says, I'm in love with Rachel. What do I need to do to get Rachel? Rachel's name means the lamb, the you lamb. So all of us came because we're in love with the lamb and we want to be in union with the lamb. So we came to our pastor and said, what do I need to do to get the lamb? He said, well, you got to work, son. You need to work for seven years. And so Jacob works for seven years. And after seven years, seven years has went by. He has worked thinking he's getting the lamb. And, but Rachel has another sister named Leah. Now, King James Bible said she was tender-eyed. That's a nice poetic way of saying she had blue eyes, one blue north, one blue south. <laughs> so, something, she, another translation says she had a dumb look at her eye. There's something desperately wrong with this girl to have to pawn her off in this fashion. Her name also means weary. So you worked for seven years thinking you're going to get the lamb and all you got was weary. And so he goes into the, to the, the whole wedding feast, goes down, consummates this relationship with Leah, wakes up in the morning with the worst breath of the day, goes roll over to kiss his young bride good morning, and when he rolls up the veil, he's in bed with a wild cow with a dumb look in her eye, and he's, weir he's got weary because her name means a wild cow. That's what her name also means is a wild cow, and she has this tender eye. So a lot of us woke up one morning thinking we got the lamb, and what we got was, you know, weary. Does that make sense? But then what he does is he comes back to Jacob, and he, or Laban, and he says, you told me I could have the lamb. And he said, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. He said, the law says the first, the law says the firstborn has to marry first. Now he said, you go fulfill her week honeymoon, and then you come back, and I will give you Rachel, and then you can work. So I like to say it like this. You can't work to get this, but once you get it, you'll work. And you don't work to get salvation. You work out of salvation with fear and trembling. And so you're working out what you already have, if that helps make sense, a little bit of it. And I think also while we're talking about works, I think also it depends on your motivation of what you're doing. I always, I always look back of why we do, why do we do what we do? And if our, if our goal is just to make ourselves better in some way or make ourselves more righteous, then the end goal is all about me. It's self-referential. It's not about God at all. So I think when we, we realize our job is to restore relationship, we've been given the spirit of reconciliation. So if, if our job is to reconcile people to the Lord, that's not work at all. That's a joy. That's good. That's, that's, that's not something that you're trying to, to gain on your own for yourself. It's just revealing the truth that you already know to be true. It's revealing the truth that you have a restored relationship with the Father now because of Jesus, and you tell other people about it. So, I mean, the work, the things that, that should be done now are from a place, like you said, not going towards. So, anyway, anybody else?
So many peoples. We'll get Brian. I'll kick my water over. Um, what does it mean to be filled with the um, Holy Spirit under the new covenant? What does that really like, you know, look like? Whoa. To be filled with the Holy Spirit in the new covenant? I really believe that there is, a, you know, a, a fresh emphasis to me on the Holy Spirit. You know what amazes me sometimes is we've set a lot of deeper life circles, and I forget that there's a whole generation among us that's never seen the power of Pentecost like I saw growing up. Now, I'm not saying we ought to go back to a lot of the legalism, but there was some very real experience. Our youth camp is probably one of the most effective things we've done for almost 40 years, and without guilt, without fear, without the manipulation. The altars are full with kids receiving from Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit without any kind of, of uh, you know, any kind of coercion. It's just a powerful move of the Spirit. And I think when the Holy Spirit comes in, it's more than, it's more than speaking in tongues or the gifts of the Spirit, but it brings all of that. I was talking with someone this morning who was talking about uh, they coming up in a certain denomination, they said, well, the, you know, the, the evidence of the Holy Spirit was love, which is the fruit of the Spirit. But I like what Paul said in Corinthians. He said, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I'm a tinkling cymbal and sounding brass. But I don't think it has to be either or. I think it can be all of the above. So I think one of the signs of the Holy Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit living inside of you, but also the gifts of the Spirit. And I, I like to use the example of uh, you know, the, the high priest, when he went into the temple, he had on the, on the skirt of his garment, there was a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate, and if you will, a fruit and a gift. And if there was no fruit between the bells, what Paul was alluding to is it would clang together like a tinkling cymbal and sounding brass. I tell people this, if you've got gifts without any fruit, you're a ding-a-ling. You're making a lot of racket. But I believe it's both. And, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know. I, people say, well, do you have to speak in tongues? I said, it's kind of like a pair of shoes. The tongues just comes with it. Why would you want to reject that when it's such a wonderful gift? So that's. I, I would add also with a Pentecostal background, a lot of what I saw and was a part of that was called the Holy Spirit, I think was certainly inspired by the Holy Spirit, but very quickly delved into works, performance, begging, and a, almost a poverty mentality, like, I got to come up here and get something. And I, I think in the long run, that does more harm than good. So where I stand, the answer to that question is I think to be filled with the Spirit is to be so saturated with the work of the Holy Spirit. And as far as I can see, the work of the Holy Spirit is to remind you that you are righteous and to glorify Jesus. Jesus said, when he comes, he shall glorify me. He will convict the world of sin because they don't believe in me. That doesn't apply to you. You believe in him. Therefore, what sin would you have to be convicted of? Righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more, which means I'm going to disappear. You're going to forget who you are. The Holy Spirit's going to be in you to remind you of that over and over again. It seems to me that the early church keeps getting refilled with the Spirit, not because they need a power jolt, but because coming from a Jewish background, they need reminded that they are what Jesus said they were. And it's easy to forget that when he disappears. And so they kept getting refilled with the Spirit in the way that Paul says, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess or abandonment, but rather be filled. That's an ongoing tense in the, in the Greek. Be filled with the Spirit. In other words, just as you've abandoned your senses to drunkenness, I would rather you abandon 
your sensibilities of who you are to the knowledge of the Holy Spirit. That is being filled and refilled over with the only thing the Holy Spirit knows how to do. Because otherwise, I think we quickly can delve off into what was I doing when I had that power moment? I need to repeat that so I can have that again. And I don't know that that was ever the Holy Spirit. That a lot of times was emotion and excitement. But the role of the Holy Spirit is not to do any of those things. Though those things come out of having fresh revelations, the role of the Holy Spirit is, you are what I said you are, and I am going, I'm a paraclete. I walk alongside of you, and I'm going to glorify Jesus. And so that is why I think you need to be refilled with the Holy Spirit every possible chance of your life so that you see the role of the Holy Spirit in, in your life. Anybody else? Um, as a, the tradition of offering tithes and offering has been changed, and we've been enlightened about that through through grace, that there are three things that that guide us while we give our offerings. Um, another um, very important part of the church has been communion. And, and as we grew up in the legalistic system, communion was a time for us to learn how bad we were and not even to remember Jesus, but to concentrate on ourselves and how evil we were and how much we needed to repent and how, you know, on and on. Um, so what is your, should it be a, like many of the ecclesiastical churches have it every Sunday? I mean, how often should you do it or should you have communion or what's your opinion of all of that? Where does it fit in grace? Uh, I, I'll start, and, and I, I'm sure we. There's a lot you can say about this. I, I would. The very short and simple answer would be, to me, as often as you do this, do this remembering me. That to me is the, is the timing and the allowance to do it as often as you do this. It's not a, do it rarely, do it occasionally. It's as often. The choice is left to you, as often as you do this. So I don't. I don't think you have to. I mean. You don't legalize it. It's not like you have to do it every Sunday, but it's also like you should, don't have to wait till Sunday either. You are a nation of priests, so you don't have to wait until you have a church leader to lead you in communion. Um, it is a practice of my wife and I to, to participate together in communion frequently because we are remembering, putting back together what Jesus did for us in the covenant, the body and the blood. Well, that covers every aspect of your life, your finances, your body, your children, your marriage, your, your relationship. Um, you get to do that. And, and for lack of understanding what has happened, Paul said, many are weak, sick, and die before the time. So it seems to me that we could stave off a lot of problems in our lives if we understood what he had paid for on our behalf. And so be it unto you according to your faith. If you believe in receiving the communion because uh, or however often you do, be it unto you according to your faith, I say participate in it to me. And I, and I think that there's multi-levels to it too. It's like that's really a vast subject because I think that we're having communion right now. We are partaking of his body. We being many are one bread. That's the following chapter in that. So every time we come together, we, we, we ate the body tonight. We fed on lamb tonight. We drank of his blood tonight. I also believe in the natural elements as well. But I really think it's your question to me was really powerful because growing up like you did probably, when it would be communion service, I would try to miss the service 
Because they would say, if you eat this bread and you drink this blood unworthily, you eat and drink damnation to your soul. And I'm like, I don't know of anything that I've done particularly wrong, but it ain't worth the risk for a cracker and a shot of grape juice. So I'm an elder, but I'm going to miss this service because I ain't going to gamble. But that's really not at all what that means because what he's saying, if you eat and drink unworthily, you're not discerning the Lord's body because he said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have any life in you. So it's kind of an oxymoron. It's like saying, all right, here's the medicine that's going to make you whole, but you've got to be not sick to get it. Those that are whole don't need a physician. It's like people saying, well, you know, you got to be perfect to get the Holy Spirit. Well, if you're perfect, what do you need the Holy Spirit for? So, you know, a lot of the times we prayed through stuff, we're praying through the unbelief somebody taught us. And really the communion table is not to disqualify you. It's to discern the Lord's body. And when you discern his body, what you're realizing is it's his death that made me worthy. And it was Judas to me is a powerful picture of this because he's the only one at the table who did not discern the Lord's body. And because the night before his decease, Jesus gave communion to all 12, including Judas, and said to them, I can see him look right straight into the eyes of all of these apostles who are going to leave him before the night is over except for John. And he would say to even Peter and to, to Judas, this is my body. Now think about it in terms of he's not just giving it to the good guys. It's broken for you. And he tells Pete, you know, and Pete says, Lord, I'll die with it. He says, listen, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Of course, I preach a message because the rooster has something to say. Because what the rooster does is not rat Peter out. A rooster announces a new day. If you've ever lived on a farm and he gets a sounding in the morning, what he's saying, it's a new day. And what Jesus was saying to Peter is to yesterday, without the Holy Spirit, you think you can go to the cross with me, and you think you can die, but without the Holy Spirit, you're not going to be able to do this, dude. And I just need you to know. And we think that the chapters are, are, are you know, separated, but it actually goes into John 14, let not your heart be troubled. In other words, that's right before Jesus looks at Peter. He said, before the rooster crows, dude, you're going to deny me. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, he begins to tell Peter, look, dude, you're going to fail, but that's what this is about, is my body was broken for you. Not to disqualify you, but Judas does not discern the Lord's body, so he goes into the temple, throws the money down on the t- floor, and says, I betrayed innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? And he went and hanged himself, when if he would have waited three hours, the hanging of Jesus would have been his hanging. That's not discerning the Lord's body and eating and drinking damnation to your soul because he didn't discern what that meant, and he thought, I need to hang myself. That's the mistake, again, of the American churches. We think our death is redemptive. It's not redemptive. Well, it also hurts us that we misquote a lot of times, too, because, like, unworthy is an adjective. Unworthily is an adverb. Mm -hmm. And we quote it as if it says unworthy, Mm -hmm. which would be an adjective. That would be describing the quality of the person taking communion. No, it's unworthily, which is an adverb, which means the way that you take it is that you don't understand what you're taking. So for you, it's snack time or a religious formula. And therefore, you've went right back under the damnation as if you had taken nothing at all. So, so sometimes, quote, understanding the word is maybe the most primary thing we can do in these texts instead of making assumptions about what they say. I, I always say, I don't care if you're a dirty, rotten scoundrel, come to the table. Because this is what's yeah. on the table. This is what's going to, if you eat the flesh and drink the blood, you have life in you. And so... I, I, when I preach it, I talk about Mephibosheth in the Old Testament, who was a little crippled boy. 
and he was the son of Jonathan, but, uh, and he thought surely King David would come and kill him. But King David is a picture of the greater son of David who says when he becomes king, is there anybody left of the household? Saul. And they said, well, there's a little crippled boy down, at, down in Lodibar uh, who was the son of Jonathan. But David made a covenant with his father, Jonathan. And so Mephibosheth comes to King David thinking, man, I am, I'm a dead dog. And when he walks into the king's palace, I promise you, he told his driver, don't go fast. When he got in the king's presence, he fell down before the king and said, what am I but a dead dog in the presence of the king? And David said, I didn't bring you here to kill you. I brought you here to give you back all your father's inheritance. And so you could sit at my table all the days of your life. And I always like to say this. I think when David invited him to sit at his table, he's like all of us. All of us are crippled somewhere. I think he probably said to his staff, he probably said to his son, listen, I've invited Mephibosheth to eat at our table the rest of his life. And whatever you do, don't point out his crippled feet and do not look under the table. Because the focus is not what's under the table. The focus is what's on the table. And what's on the table is a slain lamb. Because if you look under the table, what you're going to find out under the table, everybody at the table is crippled. So we're all invited. And so I, I tell people, man, this is not about disqualifying you. It's about qualifying you. It's about get as much lamb in you as you get. You know? And I believe it will heal you. I believe there's... I believe there could be some physical healing even in the natural elements of communion. And yet again, there's another level of that where every time we come together, we are members in particular, we come together to remember him, to put him back together again. And we take communion, we're, we're receiving of communion of the body of Christ right here. That's good. I also think, I always go back to the, I don't know, it's just me, the way my brain works, the purpose of why, what, what we're doing and why we're doing it. There's something that me and Tracy always talk about. I don't want to, and we, we still do it sometimes. I don't want to say I love you all the time because it feels like it loses its meaning. It just means I'm ready to get off the phone with you, right? I love you. Bye. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think in the same way, if we make it just about we need to do this on the third Sunday of every month, it's just a tradition. It's a thing that we do all the time. But if we're actually doing it, as it says, in remembrance of him, we have a purpose behind what we're doing, and we see the, the what actually did happen and what is happening in and through us. So I think it's the, the goal in, in what we're doing. Are we trying to gain something out of it as far as acceptance or righteousness or anything like that or are we just receiving what God has done for us and we actually see the purpose of why we're doing it not just to do it repetitively dogmatically so anybody else you can only get one I'm just kidding you're not up here but here I'm just kidding I'm messing with you you're good no I'm hang on I wanted to bring it in into context because because what Paul said unworthily kind of reminded me of what the whole the whole thing. If you take a look, what was happening is people were showing up to church with their with their lunch, yeah. and the rich folks they had they had the the good lamb, and the poor folks had a slice of unleavened bread and a sip of grape Kool Aid, and and the rich folks had the the fine Merlot, and they were treating each other frankly, like crap. And the Lord's Supper began with Jesus, knowing his full authority, took off his robes and began to wash the disciples' feet. He humbled himself, and then he said, if I, the king of the universe, the creator of all that is, the son of the great I am, am washing the camel crap off your toes and cleaning out your toe jam from having walked in donkey dung, which is what the lowest servant did, this is what you should do for each other. 
And so when Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me, it's remember that I, the last commandment that I gave you, love one another as I have loved you. And when Paul said, y'all are getting sick because this is because you're not taking care of each other. You're not going to pray for the sick. You're treating each other badly. And so part of the communion is not what did I do wrong? It's how can I show love? I think that goes along with what uh, I'll call you Lyle, Lynn. Lynn was saying it's so multifaceted when Jesus teaches us the, the, the bread and the body, and we think of the body, the body is the body of the church, is the believers. And so he was looking out. There was kind of two things going on there, I think, in the same way, that we should be looking out for our brothers, and he was getting onto them for that as well and saying, look, you've got people here that, that you're, you're putting down, and, and you're not looking after one another. I would say there's another aspect of community to communion. You know, the end of that chapter in Corinthians, Paul says, wait on one another before you partake. And part of that is in the practical sense, like, hey, quit getting finished with communion. Guys are still showing up to the party. But the other aspect of that, I think, is spiritual, which is there's great power in your neighbor. In fact, there's such great power in your neighbor that if you would trust it, they might believe for things you can't believe for. Jesus is teaching in a room, and it's packed, and the ceiling tile starts to fall in. And four men lower their paralytic friend in front of Jesus. And the Bible says, and he, seeing their faith, said unto the man, son, thy sins be forgiven, thee take up your bed and walk. That's not an accidental phrase. He, seeing their faith, said to him, there is something powerful in community where you don't believe for something, but I do. Or I can't believe for something, but you can. And we commune together. That doesn't just mean we talk, but we participate in the community of communion because if I could wait on you and not just literally wait on you and serve you, but wait on you to partake with me, you may be the one who takes the ceiling tile off of my miracle and lowers right down into the midst of my heart what I need. And so that's why there's, a, there's an aspect of the community and the communion that as great as it is to partake by yourself, find people who have faith to believe for what you don't and partake with them. <laughs> That's good. That'll preach. <laughs> All right, one more, and then we're going to get out of here. We've got one more. All right. Okay. Um. As believers, and we have all this power and authority, when we go through things, me and my little friend here, we kind of discuss it, but I want to get y'all's take on it. How do we walk out what we've been given, if that makes sense? The power and the authority that we have from him living on the inside of us. How do we go through chaos, like you've been preaching in your sermons, you know, am I making sense of what I'm trying to ask? I don't know how to put it into words. Well, I can, I can make an assumption of how you, 
what you're saying and, and try to work with that. I, it's a little bit like what we talked about this morning. I think that you accept the call. The, the call of faith is the call to adventure, but what that really means is that you're leaving something behind to walk forward into something new, and there will be strife and trouble and in the mythical language, dragons and snakes and gardens that are run amok and there'll be problems and mire and how do you get through it? How do you walk that out? Like we said today, if you walk into a wilderness with the identity that, as Lynn said tonight, if you walk into a wilderness with identity, I am the son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I am both my father's child and I'm pleasing to my father and I haven't even done anything. I just am what he says I am, like the song says. I am what you say I am. Then I can go face any adventure faith takes me in with all of its attendant hurricanes and chaos and darkness. And I have the meaning that sons make a difference on the earth and daughters make a difference on the earth. And so it's really grasping that identity and holding on to it and facing off with whatever it is that you face off with with the knowledge that I am what he says I am. And, and I think that's the power to walk into it, through it, and out of it. Um, some of these are not even places we've been led, but, they're nev- but we're never in a place we will be left. You know, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're with me. Well, the preceding verses is, you lead me beside still waters, and you lead me to green grass, and you lead me on paths of righteousness. Yea, though I walk. So you didn't lead me there, but you don't leave me there. And so in every situation I'm in, I go into it knowing that I'm his child, that he's my shepherd and I'm his sheep, and that's the equipment that I need to get through. Otherwise, you're left with the meaning of your, your money and your looks and your intelligence and your effort and your kids and your job, and all of those things might sustain you for a little while, and then they won't. And then when they don't, well, you're, you're prey. P-R-E-Y, <laughs> to something that's hunting you. And, and believe me, it's hunting you. And that's the New Testament warnings of don't give place to the devil, that adversary, that accuser. What, how do we give place to him? I don't think that's a super spiritual thing. I think that is giving place by not knowing who I am, having a drifting meaning, and not, not, not walking into this with identity. Because when you walk in with identity, don't give that identity up. Hold on to that. And... And that'll walk you through it. That help? Good. Well, all right. I think we're going to wrap it up. The kids are probably getting a little tired back there. So uh, thank you guys once again.